0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. We have a wholesale turnover in priests going on, you know, slowly but surely, that they're much more conservative today.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. And welcome once again to our senior fellow professor, Mark Regneros. Good morning, Mark.
0: Morning, Mariana.
1: Mark, do you think that we still need to introduce you? Because I feel like you're a superstar. No, you say no. Well, you are. (laughs) I say superstar because you were also recently in Europe to give a series of conferences. Is that right?
0: Not so much conferences, but talks. A talk and several interviews in Vilnius, Lithuania, and then the same in Warsaw, Poland.
1: Yeah, with COVID being almost over. Well, almost trial. over
0: here, at least in Austin. Not the it same. It was not thing. almost over in Vilnius. It was burning up there. Kind of mm-hmm. crazy. The first time that I ever had to show vaccination status to get into a restaurant. First yeah. and only time ever anywhere.
1: Welcome to Europe. And, well, superstars, because you also testified in a case recently.
0: I did last week in Hunter et al. versus US Department of Education.
1: Last week, assuming this is going out pretty soon, which I think it's yeah. going to be the I case. I think it was uh, the 8th of November, I think. Yeah. Okay. You know, and I said you're a superstar also because recently a friend of mine who's an Italian sociologist, journalist, who writes a lot, knew that I knew you, that actually I worked with you and said, well, you work with possibly the greatest Catholic sociologist in the world. Oh, that's not true. I think it is. And the people that support the Austin Institute have the same idea. So let's not tell them that they are wrong. But for those, the very few out there that don't know Professor Ignares is a professor of sociology at UT Austin, the author of four books, five-ish i think are we there no four. yeah okay four still four 40 peer-reviewed articles and he is cancel proof we have already talked 41 about. peer reviewers 41 no one right because this is the yeah. one that we are talking about no no that no. doesn't include these okay yeah. great so we so, are 44 three perhaps 42, 44 depends on what
0: you count as an article
1: Well, this is a pretty good research. So we, because we have already talked about your latest book and more than once on this show, and we talked about the status of the family. But today we want to talk about some of the most recent research that you published and co-authored, which focused on the status of the American clergy. And in particular, I would like to talk about the research paper titled, Is Homosexuality in the Priesthood Diminishing? Evidence from Sexual Attitudes, Behaviors, and Context of Catholic Clergy in the United States. And I will give us spoiler. So we link this research, but we're also linking the article that you published on public discourse, which uh, the question is among sexuality and a person diminishing. The title of public discourse is, declining homosexuality in the American prison. So we guess that that is the case, but...
0: One's a question, one's an answer, right? Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. So you did it all. You wrote your own article, you wrote your research, mm-hmm. and you asked yourself a question mm-hmm. gave yourself an answer. Yeah. But we want to hear more. Sure. And so first of all, why this research? Why this?
0: Well, sociologists like to know about change in certain things. And so... Back in 2002, the Los Angeles Times had done a survey of American priests, and it made a fair amount of attention back then. Plus, that was like shortly after the, uh, I think they call it the Dallas Conference, where the U.S. Catholic bishops had created some new rules around tightening restrictions that seemed to be helpful for seminarians, et cetera, and with the goal long-term of sort of recovering from the priestly abuse crisis. So, among all this stuff was greater scrutiny on incoming seminarians. So, that was in 2002. And we're like, okay, that's, that's almost 20 years. Let's revisit using the exact same questions to a big sample of priests and see what, if anything, has changed.
1: So, it was First, well, I have two questions about the LA Times research in 2002. So first, if you think that those results were credible, if it was a credible sample. I do. The deal is, you know, there's no nationally representative
0: sample of priests because, you know, there are lists of priests, but like that was a mail survey. Mail as in, you know.
1: Old school mail.
0: Snail mail survey. Mm -hmm. This one was an online emailed survey using the same list, basically, but since, you know, we have more addresses than we had in 2002, then you have emails in 2021. So both of those samples are a little bit different, right? And so we address some of this, the body of the text, wondering like, okay, is one of these more reliable than the other? I think they're both fairly reliable, but they both, you know, suffer from some measure of undiscernible sample bias and maybe response bias. Like, you know, what priests want to fill out a survey about sensitive questions? So you've got that, but you, you had that in 2002, you had that in 2019-21. So I think they're both pretty good samples.
1: Okay, so staying on the previous research before we get to the current one, was homosexuality a problem then? If in terms of, it, you mean sort of like, what are
0: the rates? Yeah, they were higher then than they are today. But where are they? when you overall, say they were
1: high, what do we mean by
0: high? Uh, I'm blanking on exactly what it was in 2002. But among the older priests in that, those who had been ordained, I think it was in the 1980s and 1990s, You're definitely looking at four to five times the population average. And some of it's sort of, you know, we asked a Kinsey-like scale question, which ranges from completely heterosexual to, you know, not completely, but mostly. Then you have bisexual in the middle. You have not completely, but mostly homosexual and then completely homosexual, right? So it depends on, like, do you want to just count the completely homosexual. Mm. But do you want to add in the almost, but not totally? And then what about the bisexual? So you have to make measurement decisions on this stuff. But the bottom line is we're detecting fewer today than we did back in 2002. And it's sorted by the cohort in which they were ordained, which means that the youngest cohorts are the least likely to self-report homosexuality.
1: Yeah. And I want to get there, but Again, forgive me if I want to stay in the past a little. And I have that number here. Before 1981, those that reported heterosexual orientation, fully heterosexual. Before 1991, 60%. And after 2010, 90%. So that's definitely what you've been saying. But going to the scandals in the church, the ones that gave rise to that survey, were they about homosexuality or about, do you think they were about sexuality in general? Is it the male only environment? Right. I mean, it?
0: so we're talking about uh, you know, the priestly sexual abuse scandal, is what you're inquiring about. Yes. The scandal itself, the problem was about the sexual abuse of minors. But it also happens to be that most of those minors were boys on average. And so. There's this question about sort of sexual predation of priests oh. in a homosexual direction. And I if don't have, give me, Mark, if, if sure. I'm
1: asking, I know you do not have the results on these particular. But we are talking to a lot of our audience is very young; they might have been born in 2002 right. and I have no yeah. idea what about those. Right. Well, they about. should.
0: They should know less about the abuse scandal because it has diminished mm-hmm. considerably. Partly because I think the rules that were instituted in Dallas and the greater scrutiny that's going on among incoming seminarians, and you know, not just incoming seminarians but throughout the seminary process, has been very effective, so far as I can tell. As my presumption, given what we see in terms of the declining share of priests that would self-identify as homosexual, so so a
1: higher scrutiny, you say? That there
0: is higher scrutiny, and that was kind of instituted largely by. Pope Benedict sixteenth. so I know he doesn't come on the scene in terms of Pope until 2005, but so it was this combination of what got started, and then he sort of reiterated that and clarified that theologically and philosophically. And so that continues up to the present.
1: And he could confirm, I know I've read in your public discourse article that you think that's more of an opinion that celibacy is not the problem leading to it, and basically your results would seem to confirm that.
0: What do you mean celibacy is not the problem?
1: That celibacy is not the reason why then we end up having this strange forms uh, of sexuality. No, yeah. The, right? Some
0: people claim that you know, if you weren't requiring priests to be celibate, you wouldn't have any abuse problem, right? I think you would have less of an abuse problem, but that it would be more towards girls than boys. If the priesthood was open to married men or something like that, then it's not as if you're never going to get abuse, right? it will look different, okay? And one of the things about the abuse scandal is the Catholic Church is one of the largest organizations in the world, right? So when you want to sort of consolidate information about an institution, well, that's the biggest one, right? So when they have numbers that seem large to people, one needs to kind of keep perspective because there's you know, lots of independent evangelical churches and I'm not trying to impugn them, but if they have an abuse scandal and plenty do, it's usually limited in its scope to, you know, that congregation or to a small confederation of those congregations. So, it's never the, the massive scale. So, there's this presumption that Catholic priests in particular have a problem. And then people think, well, it's because, you know.
1: Like uh, they can't practice. Yeah, they're society. not married, etc. Mm-hmm.
0: Things like that. I just don't find that that's largely true.
1: Mm-hmm. And we're talking about sexuality in the clergy, in the Catholic clergy, because homosexuality is not okay for Catholics. Right.
0: Yeah. So, all priests, including seminarians, including kids, I call them kids, but people who are fixing to go to seminary for a year or two prior, I mean, the expectation is of continence, right? So, yeah, that is the expectation. So, when we're mapping this, it's a funny question to pose to priests. They're sort of sexual orientation self-report, right? (laughs) At some level, it doesn't matter so long as they are celibate, Yes, right? And I maintain that that's true. At the same time, I mean, that's just my opinion. But, you know, Pope Benedict XVI sort of expresses like, well, what we don't want is deep-seated homosexuality, right? So he frames this in theological terms in a way that, like, you know, a sociologist, since we're talking about celibacy— Just, I don't pay close attention to it. So I'm just curious as a researcher, what the numbers are, what they mean, and frankly, how do they affect what they think about other kinds of theological matters, right? Yeah, and also
1: how they would direct the people that come to them, because what I read among is staying on the homosexual, because I know you've asked other questions mm -hmm, and we want to get there, but I see a correlation between this reported homosexuality and the fact that Okay, so for the catechism of the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. as far as I know, homosexuality is a sin, but the priest, when asked, is homosexual behavior a sin, the answer always went from 30% before 1981
0: to 90%. Yeah, so the more dramatic results in this study are not about the self-reported sexual orientations, although there's obvious change over time. Which, again, as you said, we don't
1: really care about that.
0: I mean... uh, it's neither here nor there. There's going to be some share of the population, but I find the effects of this on their attitudes about Catholic doctrines on sexual morality fascinating, right? And I think those are stronger effects here. So what you just said was about the pre-1981 ordinations, meaning mm-hmm. like priests who were ordained prior to 1981. They are fairly old now, right? Mm-hmm. 30% of them, a little over 30% said, Homosexual behavior is always sinful, right? That's it, 30%, right? An additional 34%, or no, 31% said it's often sinful. Combine those two, and you've got like 65% Mm -hmm. who said homosexual behavior is either always or often sinful. And then the, the rest of them are like seldom sinful and never sinful. The seldoms are a large bunch, right? Fast forward to the latest ordinations. Post 2010, these are baby priests in some ways you call them. That always numbered jumps from from 34% from the, the oldest priests to 89%. Right? So
1: because we have a lot of people that are not Catholic that are listening right. to us as the catechism of the Catholic Church changed.
0: No, I mean <laughs> it's <laughs> it's who's in the driver's seat, right? Who are the priests? They so, but why changed do you think that they time. were
1: so not well-formed because, I mean, what are the other questions? Oh, yeah. I mean, I,
0: I don't ask about sort of impressions about Vatican II, although they did that in the LA Times survey back in 2002. But basically, we have a wholesale turnover in priests going on, you know, slowly but surely, that they're much more conservative today. That wasn't the intention, I think, of the 2000 Dallas thing. Or Benedict XVI's remarks and instructions about seminarians, but it's the practical working out of that, right? So, one of the things that people don't look at in the study is in the appendix, there's all these regression models where we're sort of controlling for a variety of different variables, predicting why you might say homosexual behavior is always sinful or not always sinful. Anyways, one of the, you know, their celibacy habits right? Mm-hmm. Like those who are committed to celibacy and maintain that it—you know they don't have difficulty doing it. And those who are self-reported heterosexual, they're the most likely to report that, yeah, homosexual behavior is always sinful. So, it's a product of these things, right? It's not just sort of like, well, if you are this, then you think this. It's not true. But that's the beauty of sort of more complicated statistics, you can pick apart and see what are the factors that predict this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it strikes me, though, that priests ordained in a church where it's maintained that the authority is one and the doctrine is one, had such you know, free and individualized views on what they thought was a sin. And I'm thinking of all the spiritual direction they might have done and all the confessions they might have heard. Yeah, yeah, right. And you think, you know, like, what were these people saying yeah. the Catholic doctrine was on this issue? Right. There is something, you know, asking, John Paul II did a lot of work on theology of the body and sex and sex within marriage. Do you think that that may be in the formation as hell? Yeah, that's
0: a good question. We didn't ask about that particularly, so we asked questions about their impressions and, of Pope Francis, just like the LA Times asked their impressions of John Paul II. Okay,
1: right? so about the They're not directly
0: comparable because, you know, it's like, you know, different questions, completely different time frame. However, I have speculated, I don't recall if I did that in the text or if I edited that part, it seems as if this post-2010 cohort of priests, if not spiritual children, more apt to be spiritual grandchildren of John Paul II. Like their parents were big fans, I suspect, right? Because you look at who's going to seminary today. And I just thought, look at the Austin diocese and a handful that you know, like you can kind of figure out like, where's the connection, where's the motivation? And what are the habits that were formed in them and their parents? I think there's sort of a tacit JP2 legacy going on, but that's a little bit speculative on my
1: part. So, not to be speculative, but to stay as you like, to stay on the data that you gathered. Who were the priests that answered to this survey?
0: We had two big lists. One was the same list that LA Times used. And then we had an, another Catholic NGO that had a large list that we asked to use, and they gave us permission. So, these go out to a fair amount of priests. Mm-hmm. So, we tapped those to try to maximize our reach. I do have some concerns about the sample. We've got about a thousand returned. You know, there should have been more, right? So I worry that uh, response rates which are lower than L.A. Times but not profoundly lower than L.A. Times version if they signal a response bias problem or not. And Mm. the three of us co-authors sort of went back and forth with each other on this. We've talked about it in the papers etc. And are fairly confident that we are tapping something that's real, that's going on. And so I think that even if we had a response rate that was double what it was, Mm -hmm. we would still have comparable results, partly because the original list that LA Times used that we used to, when we look at just the people who responded to that list in 2021, we get results that are quite comparable to the results that we got from the second list that we used, the NGO list. So... The average age is very comparable. It's like 60 Mm -hmm. of respondents. Like younger priests are less apt to respond. But when they did respond, they were demonstrably more conservative than the older priests who were more apt to respond in the first place. So a lot of my fears about these sort of sampling issues keep being assuaged by sort of the scrutiny of the samples themselves and what did they say and how many people did we talk to. So I wouldn't have put it out there in public domain if I didn't think... Yeah. I was confident in what we found.
1: It was the Austin Institute was asked to promote this this survey, and they I, I, I understand it. Yep. yeah, I understand that there is a response bias being the Austin Institute eh, sort of maybe.
0: A, I mean, yeah. uh, my co-authors disagree with me. They think there's no evidence of response bias. I said that I would think it's maybe possible, but yeah. Uh,
1: and one of the reasons I read within your research, I think it was you or someone else of the author mentioning how there have been studies that show that when anonymity is granted which is absolutely yeah. the case of this survey people tend to be honest
0: yeah I've always found that when you guarantee confidentiality and you ask sensitive questions people kind of like saying what is true right i mean people kind of want to say things I found this in interviews too people are like oh that people never tell you the truth about it. you know what It is harder to lie than to tell the truth, okay? This is why the police come back to talk to people multiple times because they know that, you know, if you ask the same questions and they're lying, like they forget how they described it in their deceptions, whereas the truth is always directly accessible to the person and it's the easiest and most natural thing to say. I find that people on this kinds of subject tend to be truthful,
1: And looking at some of the tables and graphs that are really fascinating, I said the the paper is linked on our episode so people can click it and read it because it's there for free. But it sounds like priests ordained before 1981, again, did not have a clear ideas about the catechism of the church. And Mm -hmm. you go through a list of other behaviors that are sinful or not okay. So one of them being celibacy, we mentioned it, not a problem from 35% to 50%. That was the response.
0: I'm not surprised that there's more variation on this one. Part of it's the way the question was worded, and I won't get into the details about it, but I wasn't crazy about how the LA Times had worded that question, but we Mm -hmm. had to replicate it because otherwise you have no comparability. Okay. I could see moving from different answers to the celibacy question, like, ah, there's nuance here. I can see why people would say this versus that. But you are right that the sort of the most... Confident celibacy answer is a lot more popular today than it was in 2002.
1: Then we touched on the sinfulness of homosexual behavior from always 30%, always a sin, for the priest ordained before 1981 to 90%. Then sex outside of marriage mm-hmm. was always a sin, only for like 37% of priest, something like that.
0: The figure sex, five, right. Yeah. This is the new data, but among priests ordained before 1981 still say like 37% of those priests said it's always wrong, right? Non-marital sexual behavior. Which means
1: that the other 60, yeah. 63% 60%. said
0: something different. You know, 42% of them said it's often wrong. 20% said it's seldom wrong. So it's interesting. You, you go to a confession and you cough this one up.
1: That's you, okay. know, you have no idea. <laughs>
0: it's like the priest will probably talk back to you like, hey, don't feel so bad about this. And you're like, what?
1: <laughs> like, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> I mean, we should have a theologian on this to see if confessions yeah. would be yeah. valid. Well, I would,
0: if, I've would. i long wanted to do a study of the confessional. I know it's sacrosanct, but it's not as if priests can't talk about what they hear. They just yeah, can't true. identify whom they heard it from, right? I don't know that we really want to promote this,
1: Mark, <laughs> honestly, like the confidentiality but Like I just mark, think, you know, no, no, it is right, an
0: untapped... Amazing resource of information, vague, anonymous. I just would be fascinated because I think, you know, and people too, like they don't want to talk about what they said. But if you ask them what they heard from the priest in the confessional, then you've kind of, you know, you've imperiled yourself at some level or accused yourself. Still would be a fascinating study because people hear very different things from different kinds of priests. You'd be like, what?
1: Yeah, but could you agree that the yeah. constant one, <laughs> contemporary times, I know that we have priests that listen to us, is that if someone is not confessing, watch pornography to go again on the topic we have discussed on our episode, if they're not confessing that young man, they are lying.
0: Right. Probably. So they you know, do have a all sense of, them, of what is yeah, happening right.
1: in society. I know another sin, it was also... But I also
0: know that that's a frequently confessed sin in confessionals. I mean, yeah. having asked priests about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Masturbation. Always a sin. 18%? 18 You know, it's funny.
0: I don't think the LA Times did a pornography question back mm-hmm. in 2002. Part because, they, you know, internet was in its advent, post-advent, but pre-streaming version, right? So... They didn't I don't I don't think they included a the question we would have replicated it if they had.
1: Yeah, and we market. had phones, we didn't have smartphones at least Correct. not not right. Europeans, I don't know about but Americans. Yes. So we went there masturbation was always a sin for 18%, now it is 75%. Right. So we in do in terms have. of the
0: oldest priests and the most newly ordained priests.
1: Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. And it's linear.
0: You look at like the 80s to the 90s to 2000 2010 post 2010 and just kind of goes up in terms of the always sinful in a linear fashion from the 80s to today.
1: Then we add the question about the artificial contraception in married couples. Yeah, All that's a sand. little bit
0: different. I mean, that's even more of a linear jump because back in the 80s, you know, you're dealing with priests who were probably in their prime when Paul VI, the Lord Humanae Vitae. I think a lot of them back then, and frankly, from the data still today, wanted a different response from the Pope. Because those pre 1981 ordinations, those priests, only 13% of them think artificial methods of birth control are always sinful, right? Mm
1: -hmm. And 78, something like that now, almost 80. Yep. Yeah. 77. For the non Catholic listeners or even non Christian listeners that are listening to us now, where do we find all this answer? Like the the catechism of the Catholic Church or their books? Uh, Yeah, you can can find this stuff in the catechism. Is it detailed?
0: I don't think it's detailed, especially you know, on artificial methods of birth, control. I didn't go into the deep, you know, <laughs> which ones are included in this and which ones aren't. But the general outlines of sexual morality are described. And I think it's in the life in Christ section of the catechism,
1: which can be found online, correct? Easily. Yeah it can. So today with you, we talked about the questions related to the sexual morality of the priest, but the survey has a lot of other questions that have to do more with also the political views of the priest. And there is one of your co-authors, Brad Vermeulen, who's working with you on these things that we're going to have on our podcast to discuss more about. Because I always want to have you on the very hot topics, right the one that people don't want to talk about, but you seem to Keep going there and talk about sexuality issues.
0: It is interesting that to note that when we released these two studies at the Social Science Research Network, I was the primary writer on the, the sexuality one. And he was the primary writer on the non-sexuality, other stuff about priestly change. His article has gotten a lot more looks than mine, which is neither here nor there. But I think it means that sort of average Catholics don't really want to read about this. They don't want to know. I mean, some of it's like, I don't want to know about my priest. I don't want to think about my own behavior, all that stuff. But more people also want to know, like what's going on in terms of change in the priesthood. And frankly, priests are interested in this stuff too. And they're probably more interested in those kinds of mundane questions than these. They already have an opinion on this, and they won't be swayed by that. So I was somewhat surprised, but I'm able to explain, like why people didn't really want to read the sex paper versus the kind of everything else paper about the priests.
1: So, Mark, if I may ask, like what's the use of this information? What can right. be done? Well, with there's
0: it? from a research angle, there's just like basic knowledge. That's what I like about this stuff. I don't usually think too far down the road about what pragmatic use can be put to it. But I already know that you know there are priests and bishops who are sort of interested in this stuff. So in some ways I think that helps them with their own self-understanding of what's going on in an American Bishop's conference and things like that. So perhaps it helps them. I don't know. I collect this stuff just because it's fascinating, you know, and I want to know more about it. And, and in some cases we want to sort of, especially mapping change, right. To understand what's, what is different from, you know, as recently as 20 years ago. I mean, this is a, old subject in some ways but as in all data collection on sexuality and behavior it seems like it's a site of great dynamism for the last 20 30 plus years like lots of change going on and i thought you know well maybe that'll slow down because how much radical change can there be it hasn't slowed down yet so i'm gonna stick with it for a while
1: well, thank you absolutely. Thank you for that. I was wondering: is there similar research that's been done in other countries in Europe? Like, because we have this about the American clergy, but were other surveys ever administered in?
0: There have been studies of clergy in different countries, usually internal studies. So I, you know, stuff that sociologists would probably not have privy to. They'll, the conference of bishops in some country will issue a report. I know they have done this on the abuse crisis in multiple Mm. countries, but I don't believe we have access to that kind of data. And the data collection kind of infrastructure in the United States is really, really good. So it's just much easier to collect high-quality data here.
1: Yeah, and you made some projections about these numbers. You're talking about the
0: projections out to uh, homosexuality and priesthood out to 2051. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We took a different statistical algorithm and projected what's the case. And so out to 2041, just 20 years from now, the situation of self-reported sexual orientation or homosexuality gets even smaller and then it sort of stays stable and small from 2041 to 2051 such that you're not going to see flip-flopping around of this kind of data because once they've changed the rules and norms around how they scrutinize seminarians, etc., then That is not easily undone. And the results are what we look at now is pre 1981 ordinations, or even pre 1990. You're going to see a radical shift. Hmm. We're already seeing it among the youngest priests, but there's still a lot more older priests than younger priests. So we will probably have a priestly shortage. We already do. It'll probably get worse. But among those priests, you will not have the, you will have. A rates, of, rates of homosexuality that'll be comparable simple. to the population and probably smaller.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's about the other answers, right? So celibacy, masturbation, sex and set of marriage, contraception. So they seem to have answers that are more and more consistent with what the catechism of the Catholic Church says. So I think that those are the two takeaways, one being that formation in seminary after the the scandals probably, but it's happening. So they are educating future ministers the proper way. And also that people might feel that if they reach out to younger priests, they shouldn't think, oh, no, it's an experience is probably going to have better answers from them than from those who were ordained in the past.
0: Quite possibly, yeah.
1: Okay, so that's what the numbers say. Well, I want to thank you again, Mark, for talking about this research, something we can't not talk about. We look forward to having you again. I'm waiting for that fifth book to be published so that then we can talk about it. You and me both. All right, great, great. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. And please donate so we can do even more.